This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Maoxing Ni, known as Dr. Mao, a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine. Dr. Mao has lectured internationally, appeared on television, and been featured in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, and is currently featured as an expert on Yahoo Health, where he writes a blog about longevity. With Sounds True, Dr. Mao has released the audio program Meditations to Live to Be 100, and has a forthcoming release through Sounds True called Qi Meditations, Guided Visualizations for Self-Healing. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dr. Mao and I spoke about the mind as an ally in the healing process, what he's learned from his study of centenarians, the correlation between caloric intake and longevity, and how certain exercises can help us bring the mind and the body into harmony. Dr. Mao also shares a simple awareness meditation. Here's my conversation with the very talented and articulate Dr. Mao. Dr. Mao, you're a 38th generation doctor of Chinese medicine and an heir to a wisdom tradition that has been passed down through 74 generations. And I'm curious what it was like to be born into such a family. And didn't you experience a lot of pressure? I mean, people talk about the pressure to be a doctor. I mean, this seems uh, off the chart, potentially. Well, it would sound like a lot of pressure, and I appreciate what you're saying. And um, But, you know, I think growing up, you... Um, in, especially in a culture, I was born and raised in Asia. So in the culture where that you just accept it, you don't struggle, you don't fight it, you um, you accept what you're told, and uh, so all the trainings and all of that that I went through. But but for me, it actually there's more to it than that because the genesis of my interest in this whole tradition was something very personal to me because see I'm second born. I'm not the firstborn in my family. And so my brother, my older brother, actually got the pressure. <laughs> so I was off the hook. But for me, I had suffered a devastating fall. When I was six years old, I fell from the rooftop of our three-story house. I nearly died from that experience, and I spent about a month in a coma. When I came to, I couldn't move my arms and legs. And so I had to rehabilitate myself back, of course, guided by my father, who was a master physician, my loving mom, and everybody around me just just rallying uh, for my health and restoration, which I did. I, I fully regained my health and strength. And as a result of that, I, at a very early age, as a teenager, I, I vow that I would take this knowledge and spread it as far and wide as possible so that more people can benefit from what I 
you know, obtained from this tradition. Mm-hmm. And if you had to summarize, just in terms of the highest points, the most important highlights, what you gained from your family tradition, what would that be, the family tradition of Chinese doctors? I think um, I think it can be summed up in before my father retired. Shortly before he retired, we had a conversation, and and I asked him. I said, you know, now that you're retiring, and I'm taking over in this in this practice. Um, you know what I would just like to, you know, sort of get from you the 60 years of practice and your wisdom and all of that. And and he and he told me something that. Uh, at the mo- at the time when he told it to me, I couldn't, I didn't really quite understand. But after 25 years of uh, practicing medicine and working with probably now over 30,000 patients now, over that time, I, I realized it's 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 true every single day. And this is what he said to me: There are no incurable disease. There are only incurable people. Now I'll repeat that again. There are no incurable disease. There are only incurable people. And at the time when I heard it, I thought, well, God, I mean, what does that mean? There's plenty of incurable disease uh, that, you know, at least as far as I understood them. But then over the last 25 years, I've encountered extraordinary patients who taught me immensely about the truth of the saint in that each person is fully capable of healing and and healing from the most devastating diseases. I've had patients who had melanoma that had experienced spontaneous remission, very deadly cancers, for example. They've completely vanished from from her body. And uh, it, it, it sort of defies the medical science that we know of today. But yet, if we go back... For thousands of years, we we realize and notice that there have been many incidents and in recorded history where people have healed themselves of all kinds of conditions, and and not just physical conditions, but also emotional uh, pains. So so in, in other words, um, we are endowed with an incredible. Um, ability and potential to do great things, including healing. And so the process is to learn how to activate your own self-healing mechanism. And so we do this through meditation practices, Qigong practices. We do do this through um, eating a certain way. We do this with herbs and other natural ways to support the body's ability to do what it's supposed to do, which is to heal and to thrive. How would you describe someone who might be in that category of an incurable person? Meaning what qualities or characteristics when you meet a patient do you think, huh, this is going to be a tough person to work with successfully? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's unfortunately, you, you know, you see this uh, uh, more often than you would like to see it. People who are people who are very stubbornly clinging to a belief system, and that that everything else outside a belief system simply doesn't exist, and it's not true. 
And so when you uh, hold on to a limited concept, which the mind often has that tendency to do, then you get boxed in. And so what we see is that patients don't benefit fully from uh, being you know, more open-minded, exploring, and being proactive, taking steps to do something for themselves. And so the limitations of our conventional healing uh, model is, is that uh, unless, unless a therapy is proven in a double-blind study, then it has no validity, and it doesn't work, and it's flatly denied. That it, it so so in 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 the case of healing, we know that there are so many other ways to get the body to do the healing job, and so the, you know when people come in with that kind of mindset of disbelief and not be open to the possibility of healing uh, in other ways other than what they know, then they are truly limiting their potential to heal. That's unfortunate because so many more people can be helped. Mm -hmm. Now, I know in your approach that you work with the mind as an ally in the healing process. And and I'm curious if you can say more about that. Well, yes. Uh, In Chinese medicine, the mind and body are considered as one. It's not separate. So when we talk about uh, a physical organ name like liver, we're really speaking about everything that the liver does on a physiological level, filtration of toxins, purifying the blood, manufacturing all the compounds and so forth. We also are talking about the emotional uh, tendency, the spirit of the, uh, the, the liver, which the spirit of the liver is the soul, and the soul has a particular attribute that manifests in the personality and the way that one's mind works. And also the emotion, which is associated uh, with the liver, it's anger. It's anger, it's feeling stuck and frustrated and and depression. So again, we're talking about the liver organ system, we're talking about all of the mind, the body, and the spirit as one. And so the treatment will also reflect that. The treatment is multi-pronged approach. We are attempting to affect a well-being on all levels of the being. Okay, now I, I got a little confused as you were talking about the liver. I was with you with its physiological function, and even understanding how an emotional process, meaning an emotional blockage, could reflect itself in that organ. But when you started talking about how the soul could be connected to the liver, that was where I um, wasn't following you. Good question. <laughs> I'm glad you picked that one out. And, uh, well, see, in Chinese medicine, we have this understanding that each organ are in possession or houses a spirit, a particular spirit. And that spirit is a, a, a attribute, a spiritual, mental attribute of the person. So in the liver, in the case of the liver, it's the soul. In the case of the heart, it's the spirit. Now I'll explain for a moment in, in, in a second after I kind of go through this process. 
of uh, naming the correspondences. For the liver, uh, for the lungs, we call it po, which is this animal um, spirit, you know, this animal force within you. We talk about the kidney. We attribute it the the will, the willpower. And then finally, to the spleen, stomach, pancreas, this this digestive organ system, we attribute the ability to um, to to uh, intellectually process. So as you as you then hear about these areas, you start to discover. Oh, what what are we talking about? We're talking about an aspect of one's mind, an aspect of one's personality. You know, when you when you uh, refer to someone who has a weak will, inability to follow through with anything. Um, we then think about, ah, oh, you know, the kidney, uh, the kidney system is imbalanced, and we need to treat that kidney system in order to bring about and restore this balance in the body. So the soul and the spirit, the soul housed in the liver, the spirit houses in the in the heart. What is the difference between the two? Well, this spirit in the heart is the conscious spirit, whereas the soul in the liver is the unconscious. And so the unconscious, how does the unconscious reveal itself to us? Well, dreams are a time in which the unconscious speaks so that Again, this is where when we wake up and we have a, a remembrance of the dream, then we can uh, understand and interpret the message of the soul. And so, again, looking at this uh, this framework of attributing a particular attribute of the of the consciousness to each organ system. And then also the emotional tendencies for each, as well as recognizing their physiological significance. We we are looking at a person in their totality and not just piece of the person. You know, which sometimes we get lost when we uh, look at the current conventional medical model, which is so disease focused that we forget that we're working with a person. Now, these correspondences with the organs, this is truly fascinating to me. I think the question I have is, how do you know that this is true, that the kidneys are associated with the will, etc.? Right. This is a very good question. Uh, how do you know that this is true? You know, the fact that it's you know survived 5,000 years doesn't necessarily make it true, although Chinese medicine is a very empirical uh, medical system. What that means is that it's much of it is through a, um, observation, experience, and therefore validated over many years and many people. So, for example, let's take a look at you know I, I refer to the kidney and the will, right? And how do you know that? Well, when when someone suffers from kidney um, uh, kidney illness. For example, one of the things we'll notice is that they tend to be very timid and fearful. And that's the emotion that's associated with the kidney. And we also will find that their literally their willpower, the determination weakens substantially. These are observable um 
uh, in each patient as they suffer from imbalance of each organ system that we actually notice. But we're also not literally just treating the kidneys when we're talking about the will, right? We're really talking about how do we affect, how do we affect the various aspects of the consciousness of the person through methodology such as acupuncture, herbal therapy, nutrition? How do we affect through qigong meditation practices, this qi meditation? This is what we're talking about here. And so how do we affect these different aspects? Well, we must have, first and foremost, a framework to understand how the interactions between the organ systems work in the body. So this framework provides an operations manual, if you will, that allows us to use the various technologies and techniques to affect these deeper aspects of consciousness that at this moment in time, you know, conventional medicine uses drugs, um, psych, uh, the uh, psychotropic drugs to try to affect from a physiological level, from the neurochemical level, on an attempt to affect the consciousness. But so far, that model itself is not very satisfactory. And then we also then come from a psychological model of psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and various uh, framework and tools working with the psyche, working with the conscious and unconscious mind. But then that is at the neglect of the physical body, the physiology of the body. And so, so thus far, what we find is that Chinese medicine is really... Uh, well-suited to treat patients on all these levels of mind, body, and spirit because, again, our framework allows us to take into consideration of all three spheres of one's being. Mm -hmm. Now, I know as part of your research into anti-aging and the program that you created with Sounds True, Meditations to Live to Be 100, that you've actually spent time interviewing people who are centenarians, people who are 100-plus years old. And I'm curious what you discovered from those interviews about what creates long life. Well, Tammy, that's, that's so fascinating. You know, I spent over 20 years following centenarians around in China. I've interviewed over 100 centenarians, and typically I would, I would go and, and spend about three to five days with them watching what they eat, observing their lifestyle, talking with their family, talking with them, talking with their neighbors, to try to gather an understanding of what is it or or, or a series of things that, that, that contributes to them living such long and vital lives. I mean, I have interviewed folks that are 102, 105, 107. The oldest one was 112 that are mobile. They are healthy. They walk an hour and a half a day. Um, they still tend to their own lifestyle. They, they are not living in convalescent homes. They are living either with family or they're, they prefer to live by themselves. In other words, they, they're independent. And, uh, and 
you know, there's been so many things that I discover uh, and I noted down in the in in both my book Secrets of Longevity, which which by the way I have a follow up workbook called Secrets of Longevity, Doctor Mao's eight week program. Uh, and of course, for sounds true, I recorded the um, meditations to live to be a hundred. But you know, I would say the one thing that impressed me the most about these folks is that they are so easy to forgive and they're so easy to forget. And that that had a huge impact on me because as I sat and listened to them, every one of them had experienced tragedy, had experienced hardship, had experienced loss of family members, loved ones. And they themselves have suffered immensely, whether it's illness or personal tragedies and and so forth. There's so all of that, and yet they appear to be lighthearted. They are. They talk about it and they laugh about it. They let it go, and it was just this unique ability to not hold on, to not hang on, to not allow the events of the past to weigh them down. I think that was probably the single most important attribute that I took away from each and every one of them, besides the fact that they were all very active physically and they ate really good diets and you know and they generally under ate as opposed to overeat and this is a huge lesson for our culture and our country so people eat way too much. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll get back to that in a moment, but interestingly, when I thought of what you might say about these people who have lived to be 100, I imagined it had something to do with diet or exercise, not that it would be this ability to forgive and forget. And I'm curious how you think that contributes to good health. What's the connection yes. there? Well, you had asked earlier about and, you know, how does the, the mind impact one's health? <clears throat> and maybe I didn't, you know, sort of uh, flush out uh, uh, as much as I should have my, in my answer here. Well, in this case, obviously, the mind plays a huge role. And, and centenarians, by having a unique ability to not be stressed by past events, and the ability to let go and forgive and move on and be happy and be cheerful and live in the present moment, it has a huge physiological impact on, on their health. If you will, stress increases risk for heart disease, stroke, cancer, weakens the immune system, creates all kinds of inflammation in the body. And so if you're able to cope with your stress effectively in your life, and you're able to have a perspective on life that is all embracing and accepting, then it's very hard to get you worked up. And so being in that state of joyfulness also gives rise to good health because joy, you know, the the body responds, the cells respond to the signals from the mind. So if the mind is negative, there is such thing as a type, a personality type of type C. We hear all the time about type A, which is the hard-charging, perfectionist, 
really fly off the handle kind of people who just want things done yesterday. They're very impatient. And they, of course, is they're the type that we talk about where they're high risk for a heart disease, stroke, and high blood pressure. But what about the type C? The type C happens to be very vulnerable to cancer. And these are people who are negative all the time. They can't they always see the glass half empty as opposed to half full. They're pessimistic, they feel like they're hopeless and they feel helpless and they cannot um and they're anxious all the time. They cannot get themselves out of this mode. And that's a highly destructive mode because then you're just programming your cells to behave exactly as such. So the power of the mind is really key. And so that's why the mind has to be performing in perfect symphony, harmony with the body. And when that happens, then we have unity and we have health and we have long life. Now, this is very interesting, the idea of the mind and the body in perfect harmony. Would you say that the Qigong exercises and meditations that you teach, that that's one of their goals, that harmony? Oh, no question. No question about it. You know, the, These are ancient practices that have been around for thousands of years, and they have been time-tested, acknowledged to bring about that unity of the mind and body and to promote that harmony so that you can self-regulate. You know, what is Qigong? What is Qi meditations? Qi meditation is an attempt to self-regulate and to self-heal, to bring about the highest, the most optimum level of balance and performance for your entire being. Now, I know you refer to qi meditations as acupuncture without needles, and, and I'm wondering if you could explain that. How, how can a meditation be like acupuncture without needles? Well, in order to understand that, we have to first examine how acupuncture works. Acupuncture is a healing modality within Chinese medicine that utilizes very fine uh, disposable needles now, that's what it's used. And by placing the needle in strategic points in the body, you are activating healing energy and removing blockages, therefore restoring health and wellness. On a physiological level, when the investigators uh, you know, go about studying how acupuncture works, they have discovered that each of these points will stimulate certain point, certain uh, function in the brain or certain location in the brain. So take the example of stimulating a study that was done by stimulating a point near the foot. And that was traditionally used for the eyes, to, for vision, for eye problems. And then they, they kept a continuous uh, functional MRI scan on the brain. And during the stimulation of that point, they saw the, uh, the eye area of the brain light up. And so we know that acupuncture has also an incredible physiological basis as well. So, so in this case, when we practice qi meditations, we can tap into that same potential 
and technology of healing that acupuncture does with our mind. Because as we are meditating, we are visualizing certain points in our body. We're activating and moving chi, energy, vital force into different areas of our organ system and so forth that completes the objective of the healing process. I'm wondering, Dr. Mao, as a gift to our listeners, if you could give us a taste, just a short example of what a meditation might be that we could do to harmonize our mind and body. Particularly, you know, people may be listening to this while they're driving uh, or on their way to work. So they're, they're in a stressful situation in their life or relatively stressful. What's something that could be done on the spot in a relatively short period of time to bring the mind and body into harmony? Very good. I'd be pleased to do that. Um, well, for, first, uh, if, you, <laughs> you know, if you're driving, I, I don't suggest doing any of the chi meditations while you're operating a machinery. Uh, ideally speaking, if you want to pull over and so that you can stop engaging for a moment. that That is the key right here, is to stop for a moment what it is that you are doing that's stressing you out. And even just take one minute, two minutes, five minutes if you have, that's great. But just a brief moment to stop and still yourself and breathe. Focus on breathing. Focus on the inhalation and as the air comes into your lungs and filling up every air sac in your lungs and into the abdomen and expanding the abdomen. And as you exhale, feel how you are emptying out the cavities and allowing this carbon dioxide, this waste product to be expelled from your body and just focus on this healing breath that's coming in and out, in and out for a moment. Okay. And then after you do that, you can then, you know, very simply, I mean, again, this is one simple practice that you can do is, and, and in fact, this practice is in the um, upcoming, you know, Qi meditation CD that, um, that sounds true is producing. And uh, it's, it's, it's an awareness exercise, awareness meditation. So then after you become aware of your breath, you go to your head, and then as you breathe, you become aware of your scalp. You become aware of the tension you're holding in between your brows. You become aware of your jaw and how tense that is. And so you want to let go and allow each of these areas to just restore the optimum, healthy, normal expressions. That is the relaxed state. And then you can, when you finish with that, then you move on to your arms. And then you can move on to your chest, your abdomen, then your back, upper, middle, and lower back. And then you can move down to your thighs, your knees, your legs. And so at each place, just become aware of the tension that you're holding and then letting go. And this doesn't have to be a drawn-out process. It could be two minutes just checking in where you are. And very immediately, just from doing this, you will find that you have interrupted this stressful response and that you now should feel more relaxed, 
more calm and more clear. Because when you're not calm and when you're distressed, your mind is muddled and you've got too many things going on. So you can't see clearly what the next step should be. But if you have clarity and calmness, then you very quickly identify what is the right thing to do next. And that thing that which you are about to do will then have repercussion of you know, a chain reaction, if you will, for the rest of your day or rest of the project. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Now, it's interesting that when you talked about what you learned from centenarians, it had to do with this ability to let go. And here we are, we're doing a practice that involves releasing and letting go. And, and it does seem, and I'm curious what you have to say about this, that in order for us to let go, that we have to be able to do so physiologically, that we can't just like say to ourselves, okay, I'm just going to forget all of these terrible things that happened and take on a positive attitude about life, that that might not be enough just at the surface level, that we have to really learn to work with our body and have it let go of what it might be holding. What do you think about that? Oh, it's a, it's essential for it to be effective. And that's why the breath is key. The, the breath unites the mind and the body because the breath is a physiological process in which you can control, although it's also an automatic response. You don't have to think about it to breathe, but you can also control it. And this breath affects every process in our body, this respiration, this breath of life, if you will. If we stop breathing for a few minutes, that's it. The, you know, life as we know it would end. And so this breath is so critical. So using the technique of breathing is key to bridging between the mind and the body. And then there are you know, there are other techniques that you can use. For example, sometimes just by holding an acupuncture or acupressure point or tapping in a point can activate the function of that point. And and so you can do that as well. Uh, there are simple movement postures that you can, you know, you can hold or get into. Um, or you can, if you're trying to uh, relax a certain area, you can actually do these response where as you inhale, you tighten the muscle in that area and you exhale, you actively relax. So again, the mind and body has to function as one. This unity is very important. And by by engaging in this integration, you're going to be able to heal and and, and achieve what, you know, what my father says, you know, there are no such thing as an incurable disease. There are only incurable people. Now, you mentioned the value of undereating versus overeating. So I want to get back to that. As somebody who loves food and has a tendency to overeat, how can you help those of us who, you know, have that glutton streak? How do we learn to undereat? Well, the... Um well, first of all, understanding why you should undereat is important, and understand the rationale behind it. Calorie restriction is probably the only proven technique for extending life lifespan. This has been repeated over and over in all kinds of experiments and animal models. And the reason is simple: in that every time you eat, 
yes, you are deriving nutrients, but you're also increasing the, the amount of toxins and waste products your body's producing, and therefore the free radicals. The free radicals go around and damage the body and causes inflammation, premature aging. So if you eat less, you have less to process, therefore less waste and toxins to deal with. So that's number one. Number two, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to digest and break down. So again, you're you're allowing your body to spend less energy uh, on digestion and therefore more energy for other processes. And three, when you undereat, you are making the body, you're training the body to be much more efficient and effective. So the body has to actually work more effectively because what's the difference between someone who eats, let's say, 1,500 calories a day versus someone who eats 5,000 calories a day? Well, the the amount of calories is substantial, the difference. The 5,000-calorie body essentially has everything it needs and more. So it doesn't have to work at all. So the body becomes lazy. The functions become lazy. And then the body simply stores up all these extra calories as fat. Whereas the under-eating body has to work a little bit more diligently to make sure that 1,500 calories is going to be sufficient for the day's expenditure. And so, in a way, um, you are causing a very beneficial um, training, and you're, you're exerting a beneficial training on your body to work better, more effectively, and, and, and also with less toxins to deal with. So there are many good reasons why you should undereat. And in fact, the benefits of undereating is immediate. If you undereat, your mind's more clear, you have more energy, you wake up the next day feeling better instead of feeling groggy, right? Because your body hasn't been spending all night trying to digest and process. And you feel lighter. There's a there's a lightness of being that comes. This is why in ancient traditions, so many spiritual traditions have have uh, promoted fasting. When you fast, your body is forced to go into that state in which it has to become very efficient because there's less resources to deal with. And this trains the body to actually work better and healthier and stronger. Well, I have to say your logic is inspiring me and very convincing, very compelling. And, and by the way, Tammy, you don't have to, I don't advocate that you don't eat I, you can still enjoy all the things that you eat, but all you have to do is just take 20% of the food off your plate and you know, and eat it later. Just put it aside. When I go out to a restaurant with my wife, we usually split an entree. And if she doesn't want to split with me, I'll order my entree and I'll ask for a box. And the box comes with my food. I take portions and usually about half, actually, of what's on my plate because restaurants are obscene. They serve way too much food. And I put it in the box. I stick it in a plastic bag, and I put it dead knot on it. <laughs> so, you know, after I finish and polish off the plate, and even if I'm still a little bit hungry, which oftentimes is more of a mental hunger than anything else, 
I'm a little too embarrassed to rip that bag open because it's tied up with it. Okay. <laughs> it's the tight so knot I'm, technique. So, so what I'm advocating is that, you know, sometimes you may not have, you know, the kind of strong willpower. Well, just make it harder for you to get into it. Don't have it in the house. If you If there's something you shouldn't be eating, don't buy it. Don't put it in the house. And occasionally, if you go out to a restaurant, enjoy it, but small quantities. And if you do this and you customarily under-eat, you will feel better. I mean, it's an immediate. You will feel it. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other concerns that people have as they age, of course, is memory loss and not having their minds operate as sharply as they wish. I'm curious what you think about that and what your recommendations are for people to keep their memories particularly sharp as they age. Yes, and and that is something that a lot of people experience as they get older. And one of the main reasons is because circulation is diminished to the brain. So as you as you, um, the wear and tear of your body occurs over time, plaque will build up if you, of course, don't watch what you eat and you don't exercise and so forth. So plaque builds up. And so that means the pipe going into your brain, supplying you with fresh nutrients and oxygen and all of that, become diminished. You know, it gets smaller. So there's less blood, less nutrient, less oxygen. Of course, you're going to be more befuddled and maybe not recall as easily. And so the most important thing is to increase circulation. And increase circulation, the easiest thing to do is to exercise. So, And, and there's plenty of research that will demonstrate the benefits of exercise and delaying the onset of senility and dementia. But there are many other things one can do. And since I practice Chinese medicine and I use all the the tools that are available to me with acupuncture which stimulates brain function, herbal therapy which using, you know, things that people can get in the health food store like ginkgo, goji berries, and uh, hawthorn and other types of herbs can really be helpful as well. And then, uh, you know, doing qi meditation, because again, what are you doing when you're doing qi meditation? You're activating your brain function, you're increasing blood flow into the brain, and you are integrating the mind and the body. And once again, this is these are the kind of practices that have been shown to promote longevity, vitality, youthfulness, and certainly brain power. So, and, and finally... You know, one of the things that I find helpful and I counsel my patients is this, is that if you are well organized around you, meaning in your house, in your office, and so forth, then most likely you'll be well organized in your mind and there won't be so much clutter in your head space and you'll remember better. This this is an actual simple thing. If you just clean your environment organize everything, and get rid of all the clutter, you will find something magical happens. All right? That it will not only help you remember, it will save precious memory space for you to fill with more important and pleasurable memories. Okay, Dr. Mao, just a couple more questions here. I'm impressed by all of these tips that you're giving about how I can live to a a wonderful old age. 
I'm curious if any of the things that you know are good for you are actually really hard for you to do. You haven't yet found a way to, whether it's, you know, the amount of exercise or, or how you keep your desk. Are there any of these things that you've actually found, well, that's where my discipline breaks down. I just can't do it. Okay. Well, you're getting personal here. I am. <laughs> well, that's all, that's always a, that's the hallmark of a good interviewer, I have to say, when you get personal here. I do. I, you know, in fact, uh, I'm the first to admit that I'm not perfect. I am a work in progress, and I'm a student of life. So I keep working on my discipline. But one of the things that I wish I could do, and some of this is just, um, I think, due to work uh, workload here, is that I would love to have more time to devote to all my many meditation practices that I have learned. For example, at this moment in time, I devote about an hour and a half every single day to the things that I do and I love to do the most, which would be Tai Chi, Chi meditations, and a little bit of walking. But my goal is at least three hours, double that, if not more. I love to just take a day out every week and do nothing but just do my practices and walk in nature and do a little fasting and and just really living in harmony within myself and with the universe. Uh, but I have three kids and I have a full-time practice and I travel and lecture all over the country and the world. And so, you know, hour and a half is pushing it. So I'm, I'm happy I can get that hour and a half, but I, I wish I can get more. So I'm working on that. So... Fair enough. Thank you so much for answering honestly. And then just my final question, which is, here we are, we're talking about living beyond 100, a long life. And I know that, at least according to legend, the Taoist sages were always interested in long life, promoting long life. What do you think is the value of living a long time? Well, first and foremost, you have to understand this fact. Your body wants to live to be 100. So in other words, you might not have a choice. Your body is made, according to science, to have the potential of living to 120, if not 140. We're starting to discover this potential. And so a lot of people are going to be around for a long time. So here's your choice. Do you want to spend the last 30 years of your life, your lifespan, crippled, disabled, sick all the time, not having energy, or have half of your brain not functioning. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a clear choice. The benefits of living a long time is that you also have time to do all the things you want to do and to actualize your full potential. We are born with a unique gift. And what is that gift? That gift is who you are. And you must, through your lifetime, actualize your full potential and therefore live your destiny and so and then once you have fulfilled your life life's purpose then you want to think about what kind of legacy you are leaving behind because the Taoists talk about immortality a lot what is immortality the spirit 
lives on beyond the physical uh, body. The physical body will disintegrate at 120, 140, maybe at that point. But what happens to the spirit? So it is believed that that spirit will continue to live on. And so, but what what do you leave behind is what truly, I think, in our current ability to grasp what immortality is. Immortality is your legacy. What do you leave behind? And the world should be a better place because you have lived. And that is being of service to the world and to the humanity. And uh, so it takes time to work on your legacy, to build your legacy, to fulfill your purpose and your destiny. And so this is the reason why, for me personally, I want to live for as long as I can. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Mao, for being with us and for sharing with us so much of your generosity and your gifts. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Tammy. We've been talking with Mao Xing Ni, known as Dr. Mao. He's the author of the book, The Secrets of Longevity, and has created an audio learning program with Sounds True, Meditations to Live to Be 100, along with a forthcoming release on Qi Meditations. Dr. Mao, a wonderful 38th generation doctor of Chinese medicine. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.